Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, let's turn back to markets. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, and we have with us, we are very lucky to say, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors uh, here in the studio. Um, Phil, so can you give us a sense, let's start with the yields, the rising uh, U.S. yields, and how much that will just sort of de facto put a halt to the rally in stocks. How worried are you? Have we reached the tipping point? Well, I don't think we've reached the tipping point. Now, our target for benchmark 10-year treasury yields at the end of this year was three and a quarter percent. We're there. So we're not the least bit concerned about that. What does concern us is the rapidity of the move. We've gone from 305 to three and a quarter in what, a week. So I think the market's looking at that and freaking out and saying, okay, if we went up, you know, 20 basis points in a week, what are we going to do over the course of the next month or the next quarter? Are we looking at, you know, 5% treasury yields by the end of the year? Okay, fair enough. But what is the tipping point? Is there sort of a number with the 10-year treasury yield at which uh, the equity markets just cannot rally anymore? Well, in our view, that number historically has been 5%. And 5% is the point at which you begin to see massive disintermediation from the risky asset, stocks, into the risk-free asset, bonds, because the yield is attractive. And then as as yields continue to rise, 6%, 7%, PEs actually contract. Up until 5%, PEs historically expand. So and why is that? Well, as, as, as economies come out of recession, as economic growth perks up, as inflation starts to perk up, as the Fed is tightening policy, as yields are rising, all of that is good for corporate earnings because it means that the economy is strong. The 5% level historically has been the tipping point because you've got the risky versus you know, risk-free inflection point that starts to take money away from, from the equity market. Now, the, the, there are some who argue, well, okay, this time is different. 5% won't be the inflection point. Maybe it's 4%. Maybe it's 3.5%. And, and I'm sensitive to the fact that people think that a lower number is right this cycle. But uh, let me point out that the four most dangerous words in the English language, this time it's different. Phil Orlando, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, chief of J.P. Morgan Chase, says that people should prepare for U.S. yields of 5%, as you just described, and he believes that the yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury could reach 4% this year and perhaps even 5% or higher next year. He says you better be prepared to deal with these rates. Are clients and customers prepared? Um, certainly not our clients or customers because uh, our forecast is not Jamie's forecast. We thought that Treasury yields would get to three and a quarter percent this year. They have. We think they'll get to three and a half percent next year. Uh, you know, Jamie thinks probably we'll get there by Thanksgiving this year. Uh, and then our expectation is that as the bond vigilantes begin to look out into the back half of 2020 or the early part of 2021, and see some seeds of slowing economic growth, we actually might see 
uh, a rally in bonds from three and a half percent, taking yields back down. So if Mr. Diamond thinks that we're looking at a 5% treasury over the next couple of years, he's got to believe that there's much stronger economic growth, much greater inflationary pressures in the pipeline that will emanate over the course of the next couple of years. All right. So you sound like you are bullish. You are sounding like you don't see treasury yields rising to the point of stymieing the rally in equities. So are you out there buying the dips at this point? Uh, we will. We're monitoring that. There are a couple things that we look at. There's an interesting confluence of three indicators that are uh, looking interesting. Uh, stocks oversold, bonds overbought, and uh, 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 bonds oversold, and and uh, uh, and the VIX overbought. Uh, and those things are, are are shaping up right now. So I don't know if today is the day. Uh, or if tomorrow is the day. But as I look out at the market over the course of the next month or so, there are several positive catalysts that I think will reverse this recent weakness. Uh, You've got corporate earnings starting later this week, including Mr. Diamond's firm. I'm expecting his company is going to produce some pretty good numbers along with others. We're thinking that corporate earnings are going to be 20% plus for the large caps this quarter. Uh, We've got the uh, flash report from the Commerce Department on third quarter GDP, which will be out, I believe, October 26th. We've got 3.4% is our number at Federated. Uh, I think the Atlanta Fed, for example, might have a four handle on their number. Uh, and then we've we're, the midterms are going to be over in a month, and, and all of this noise and nonsense will be behind us. There will be some certainty. Yeah, right. <laughs> really? We're going to quote you on, on that one. I, I want to ask you more, a more uh, everyday question. Sure. Right? So far this month, the S&P 500 is down a little bit more than 1%. What is the number, based on your experience, where the customer and the client starts calling? Well, uh, you know, that becomes more of a technical question than anything else. So, so typically, Pim, the third quarter of a midterm election year, a year like this, tends to be a really sloppy quarter. Well, the month of September, uh, we're up. 7% or something in the month of September. It was the best month we've seen in like five years or something like that, or numbers have been strong. Um, I like to look more at peaks to troughs. And and this little correction that we're seeing in the large cap market right now is about 3 or 4%. In the small cap market is about 7 or 8%. These are healthy corrections. And what I'd like to see is some pullback to some longer-term support levels in conjunction with continued solid fundamentals. We talked about a couple of things, GDP growth, corporate earnings growth, that become sort of buy signals for us. So I'm not ready to pull the trigger right this second, uh, but I'm not getting panicked by this at all. I'm more inclined to be buying at the margin than selling, depending upon how events play out over the next few weeks. So which sectors are you looking to potentially buy when you get that valuation that looks attractive to you? There are two areas that just look extraordinarily interesting to us. Domestic large cap value uh, has underperformed growth by something like 30 percentage points over the last two years. Financials, industrials, and energy at the top of that list. And then small cap stocks 
as I said, have pulled back 7 or 8% here over the last month or so. Uh, for a number of reasons, we think that uh, the small cap rally we've seen earlier this year has legs. Uh, and um, uh, I think small caps are, are, are oversold at this point and, and will rally, will resume their rally later this year. Where's the money going to come from? It ought to come out of bonds. Uh, because if Jamie Dimon's right and Treasury yields go to 5%, we're sitting at three and a quarter right now. Uh, I don't know why you'd want to be long a Treasury in this environment. Okay. But if Phil Orlando is correct, yep. you won't have been in bonds. You will have been in stocks. Where's the new money going to come from? Well, I, I still think we still have a significant underweight in fixed income. We are 5% overweight equities, 5% underweight cash. And if if an investor is really interested at the three and a quarter percent treasury yield because they need the money, I can show them our strategic value fund that's giving them a five percent dividend yield right now. So so if if money, if income is what they want, you can do that in the stock market. You don't need bonds to do that and the risk of of, of a capital loss. All right. So what's the biggest risk to your outlook right now? What could potentially happen that would make you be wrong? Well, there's, you know, I've got a list of nine things that keep me awake at night. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here talking my book and sounding bullish, but that, that doesn't mean there's nothing that's going wrong in the world. And, and at the top of the list is, is the Federal Reserve going to make a policy error in the out years? I mean, that concerns me. Uh, trade and tariffs. That seems to be falling into place. China is sort of the last man standing here. But, you know, are we going to be able to pull off the last trick here and, and get the trade and tariff situation in good shape? The, the blue wave. I, I think we're going to end up with a split election. I think the, the, the House probably flips. The Senate probably stays in Republican control. But suppose the D's run the table. Suppose we spend the next two years going through impeachment proceedings and, and that takes the focus away from, you know, fiscal policy and strong economic growth and strong corporate earnings growth. So there's any number of things that can go wrong. Um, and so you just, you know, you just have to evaluate what's going on and try to get the best information you can to your clients. Phil, does all of this stay the same if oil remains at, let's say, $74, $75 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate well, or 80 plus when yeah, it comes to Brent? Thank you. I'll give you your $20 later. Uh, excellent question. <laughs> you know, you pick up any newspaper in America and, uh, you know, headline writers are crude going back to north of $100 a barrel. And, and that just isn't happening. The supply and demand imbalance right now. Uh, we're past the peak driving season. Uh, we're fracking to beat the ban. The Saudis and the Russians are continuing to pump. Uh, okay, I think they're going to offset the diminution of crude that, that uh, we may lose out of Iran if, if these nuclear sanctions are reimposed. There is concern in the Gulf right now with Hurricane Michael. Does that take any refining capacity out? I understand all the near-term noise, but, but our view is that the move up from $40 a year and a half ago would sort of settle into the $65 to $75 barrel range. We're at the top end of that range now, so I'm, I'm fine with, with crude at 75 staying within that 65 to 70 I don't think that the newspapers are doing a good job getting everyone all worked up with, with $100 plus crude. I don't think crude's going to $100. It's not just the headline writers, though. There are some pretty big analysts on Wall Street who are predicting $100 or more uh, per barrel of oil. And the IEA has come out and said, you know, yeah, please pump more so that we can get the prices down. So it's not just headline writers. There seems to be an increasing risk of that. 
I'm just I, throwing that out there. And, and, and that's fine. Given the fact that the three largest producers in the world uh, at 10 to 11 million barrels a day, the United States, the Russians, and the Saudis, I think will continue to pump when push comes to shove. We're at a point in the cycle where the demand starts to diminish. Uh, obviously, we've got to watch the hurricane activity. Obviously, we've got to watch what's happening in Iran. But I think that this balances itself out and we'll be okay. And I thought you were just going to tell us that Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, he wants to buy more more assets in the in the shale play with his Comstock resources. I, I didn't hear that, so I, I don't have any I don't have any knowledge about what Mr. Jones is doing. <laughs> All right, well done. Thanks very much for sharing your knowledge with us. Phil Orlando is the chief equity market strategist for Federated Investors, and uh, Lisa, I think we can just call him a bull right now. For He's now, bullish for yeah. now. Thanks yeah. for having me on, guys. It is it is a treat to come on to this show. You guys are terrific. Thank you. All right. We'll give you the $20 back. Thanks very much. <laughs> Phil Orlando of Federated Investors. Our guest is Carl Weinberg. He is the chief economist for High Frequency Economics. And you can follow Carl on Twitter at CB Weinberg. Carl, can you speak a little bit about fatigue when it comes to global growth and particularly in the context of the meetings that are scheduled to take place in Bali for the International Monetary Fund? Yeah, hi, Pim. Good morning. So, you know, the IMF has been talking this story for uh, some time now. Their byline at their last set of meetings was, you know, is this as good as it gets in the world economy? Uh, this time around, they translated that into some numbers in their world economic outlook, shaving down their growth rate. They still have a pretty cheeky uh, growth rate of 3.7% for the world economy in there, the same for this year as last year. But most importantly of all, the IMF has a lousy record of predicting uh, turning points in the the world economy. So uh, this document is kind of provocative in that it gives people something to think about, but the IMF has missed every economic downturn over the last 20 years uh, in its world economic outlook. There should be nothing new for investors in what came out of the IMF today. All right, but Dr. Weinberg, do you agree with anything that they put out there, putting aside their track record? Yeah, I mean, I think that the broad story is that there are risks to the world economy coming from trade. There are, I think, bigger risks out there that the fund mentions a little bit deeper into the document. Higher U.S. interest rates are a drain on uh, growth potential and disposable income for countries that have uh, high foreign currency debts denominated in dollars. The stronger dollar is also a drain. Higher oil prices are also a drain. So we have clouds forming over the world economy, and we're starting to see that in things like the industrial production number for Germany that came out on Monday. We're starting to see it in slowing GDP growth in places like Japan. Uh, and uh, so overall, I think the fund's message is right on, but I think that they're still uh, probably more optimistic. And if history is any guide, they are too optimistic about how this is going to evolve over the next year or two. Carl, do you believe that the Chinese will be able to outweigh the United States when it comes to trade negotiations? Yeah, I certainly think they will. I certainly think they have to. Uh, the prize in all of this is China's industrial development policy, the so-called Made in China 2025. And that's a program in China to acquire the technology to produce 70% of the stuff that goes into what they assemble and re-export, rather than the 30% that they currently produce uh, at this time. So
So that difference, 40% of the value of exports, is a trillion dollar a year prize that comes to China. And that's what's really at stake. The U.S. Trade Representative mentions this program explicitly in its uh, statements about uh, U.S. tariffs, um, and China's never going to give that up. So I think the Chinese have a big prize, a big payday at the end of the day for sitting out the tariffs. I believe they will. Dr. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Dr. Carl Weinberg is chief economist at High Frequency Economics, talking about the IMF's stellar track record. He actually uh, doesn't put a whole lot of credence in that, but it's definitely uh, looking at the potential for uh, slowing global growth. Joining us now, Mark Lindblom, Portfolio Manager for Western Asset Management. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Can I just ask, do you find Treasuries attractive here, given how quickly yields have risen to seven-year highs? Uh, Good morning, and thanks for having me on. Uh, The answer to your question is we do. Uh, We have, for most of the year, had two reasons that we are favoring U.S. Treasuries uh, first is that we thought uh, economic growth this year and next year would be a bit more moderate, and I have to say we've been wrong on that given the fiscal impulse that we've seen. Uh, nonetheless, uh, our economists here are looking for somewhat slower growth versus what we've seen the middle part of this year, but most importantly, from a bond point of view, that inflation is going to remain around uh, 2%. The second uh, reason, uh, I, I would say, though, is as important, and that is as part of a fixed income portfolio, we do want to have a risk mitigator and insurance policy, if you will, uh, just in case we did start to see a slowdown or our financial conditions did start to pinch uh, economies around the globe. Both of those reasons uh, we are favoring, favoring uh, treasuries here. A little bit more even around, across the curve than we have in the past where we have uh, focused on the long end. Mark, is that also uh, the two reasons why you're choosing now to issue and launch the first fixed income exchange traded fund uh, from Western Asset Management, the uh, Western Asset Total Return ETF? Somewhat coincidental there. What we've been hearing from um, um, the field um, and from those who know Western well over the last four decades is they've been looking for an additional vehicle besides a separately managed portfolio or a mutual fund or a commingled vehicle, and specifically an ETF. So from our point of view, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, that it, it is a, a different wrapper, if you will, but it will be managed pretty much the same as all the other vehicles with all the same Western themes uh, as part of the ETF. All right. Are you at all concerned about revealing your secret sauce since you have to actually disclose the uh, holdings in real-time basis of the ETF? Really not. I mean, we've been always very open about uh, what we are doing on a daily basis. So to the extent that this is a little different and, and a, from a formal point of view, uh, it's, uh, it, it does not bother us in, in the least in terms of letting, letting that information out there. So can you give me a sense here of what you would have done or what you did do in the past week, given the sell-off in, in treasuries that we've seen, but also the, the sell-off in investment-grade debt in particular that really has been quite, quite significant? 
Yes, it has been quite significant. To your first part of your question, uh, as I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, in the last several years, our clients have benefited from our dedication and some would say stubbornness, don't, wanting to own the longest part of the U.S. Treasury curve. And that was based upon our view that the Fed would uh, very slowly increase rates. In fact, they have done that, as we all know. The expectation is they'll continue to do that. And we are uh, moving some of that contribution, if you will, or that duration down into the short and intermediate part of the yield curve. Uh, uh, just thinking it's their better value there or fully reflect expectations on the part of the Fed as we go into 2019. And as we all know, there are now actually real yields there. They're, they're quite attractive in our opinion. So that has been a change. And then one of the things that we've been doing over, over the last week or so as, as, the, uh, as the market's been backing up quite substantially. Uh, on the non-treasury sectors, uh, uh, to, your, to your question, we've been growing increasingly cautious, particularly towards the corporate sectors and particularly to the below investment grade corporate sectors where we've been taking our allocation to high yield and bank loans lower. Investment grade corporates, we've been more neutral, but our investment grade corporate team has been concentrating on those sectors that we feel most uh, good about it in the late late uh, stages of this economic cycle. Uh, the one thing I'll add to that uh, is that the one area we do have higher conviction on is emerging markets, while all the others we don't have that same high conviction. Or to put differently, we just don't think we're being paid for the risk. When you mention emerging markets, do you mean dollar-denominated emerging market debt or local currency debt? Um, a little bit of both, quite selective, like we are in every credit sector on those countries or those corporations within those countries that we're choosing. But as you look at our portfolios today, right across the board, we're approximately half the dollar, the external debt, and we are approximately half in some of the local uh, bonds and local currencies. There is an increasing sort of uh, din out there that the Federal Reserve is on the brink of a policy error as it increases the pace of raising rates. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, do you think that that risk is, is growing uh, stronger? I think we'd have to acknowledge over the cycles that we've all lived through, when you look at business slowdowns and actual recessions, there are common themes as to why they come about uh, in terms of the Fed being on the move, uh, perhaps commodity prices increasing, uh, some uh, misallocation of capital, uh, inventories, etc. So we are not about to dismiss what's happening now in terms of the Fed being on the move. Uh, and planning to raise interest rates uh, to neutral or beyond, as they've been saying recently. The thing that we all just don't know how to weigh is this experiment we've been conducting for now 10 years as we unwind that. And if the speed limit of growth around the world, and particularly in the United States, is lower, uh, we would believe then that smaller incremental increases in the Fed funds rate and market interest rates will start to impact the economy sooner. So uh, we are not about to uh, ignore those signs at all and are uh, growing a little bit more cautious towards particularly the non-treasury sectors uh, in, in recent months. We're speaking with Mark Lindblom. He is portfolio manager for Western Asset Management Company. We're speaking about the firm's first fixed income ETF. It's called the Western Asset Total Return ETF. And as part of the mandate, you've put a cap on the amount of assets that can be put towards junior loans, debt instruments that are either unsecured uh, and subordinated. Could you speak a little bit about that and particularly about the market for junior loans? Sure. 
This is consistent with how we view here at Western Asset uh, the um, uh, core or a core plus bond fund in that uh, the the buyers of these uh, these funds, usually which are measured against an aggregate indexes, as you know, are, are meant to be an anchor to windward sort of uh, vehicle. Uh, core Plus does offer some flexibility in terms of the below investment grade uh, sectors to gain some yield and return advantage. Uh, we certainly were advocates of that. But to your, to your point about limitations, we want to be very careful that the uh, purpose and the objective of a core plus fund is to provide higher returns versus an aggregate index over time, but without substantially higher volatility. Um, so our intent is through the guidelines, the guardrails, if you will, uh, that we do uh, limit some of those uh, some of those sectors as part of the asset allocation. Unconstrained funds, for example, that didn't have a benchmark and had a lot more flexibility, uh, certainly would have uh, greater greater uh, room to add those. On your question, your second part of your question, you know, what do you think? Uh, as I suggested a little bit earlier, um, when we look at many of the sectors below investment grade. Uh, across corporates or even structure most recently, and by structure I mean CMBS and residential loans, uh, we are not at all pounding the table and saying we're about to go into a slowdown or a recession. There are a lot of folks out there with that prediction of 2019, 2020. That isn't our call, mm. but the key is the valuations just aren't there to benefit our investors currently. Thank you so much for being with us. Mark Lindblom, Portfolio Manager at Western Asset Management Company, uh, which oversees $420 billion. They did just uh, launch a new actively managed ETF, the Western Asset Total Return ETF, uh, which uses the same strategy in the broader non-ETF fund uh, in, in real time. Right now, we're looking at uh, emerging market currencies that are just up a slight bit if you look at the MSCI index, but certainly they're stable as compared to the plunge that we saw earlier. The question is, is this just a relative bit of calm before the storm continues? Joining us now, Dr. Wynn Thin, Global Head of Emerging Markets for the FX Markets at Brown Brothers Harriman, coming to us from New York. Uh, Dr. Wynn Thin, thank you so much for being with us. So let's talk about that. I mean, the IMF came out with this report downgrading their expectations for some major uh, emerging market economies, including China and Brazil. Do you think that what we're seeing right now is the calm before the storm? Well, I say, we're, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, well, look, we've had, we haven't exactly had um, much calm this whole year, uh, so I would say this is just sort Fair of a pause <laughs> within a greater bear trend. I mean, as you mentioned, the global backdrop for EM remains um, very difficult. Global growth forecast lower. Uh, I'm also marked down trade uh, flow forecasts, you know, reflecting the trade tensions. Uh, and we've got higher U.S. interest rates uh, and moving higher. So the, the backdrop for EM remains negative. Um, you know, I think this is sort of a, a little bit of a pause. Um, but uh, I, I think it's way too early to say, hey, this is a good time to, to buy EM. If you look at the MSCI um, Emerging Markets Index, we're breaking it down and making new lows uh, for this move um, this yesterday. And I think that's, you know, sort of the negative sentiment remains in place. Do you believe that dollar strength continues? I do, yes. Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, as you know, the, the U.S. bond market was closed yesterday. So we, we ended last week on a very um, uh, sort of strong note in terms of yields. We had, we had U.S. 10-year yield poking up around 325. 
I think the markets started this week worried that we'd get a further push up. But for now, we, we, the, the, we haven't really pushed that, that key 325 area. And so I think that's part of the calm is that you know, we haven't seen this, another leg up in U.S. rates, which, of course, as we mentioned, is very negative for EM, very positive for the dollar. So, you know, we've got uh, PPI tomorrow and CPI the day after uh, here in the U.S. And I think those will be very key given that the focus on on yields and, and rates here in the U.S. I think it's still the primary driver for global markets, not just rates markets, you, you, you probably know. The equity market has started to really feel the, the heat. Um, you know, part of that is the, the fact that a lot of these uh, uh, stock valuations were, were made under the assumption of low interest rates, and that's that's being readdressed now. I want to turn the focus a bit to China because uh, China eased policy further uh, this week, and they're trying to ignite some growth or at least cushion the slowdown in growth that we've seen. And I guess. I'm really struck by the reaction of markets with the equity market in China falling after that announcement, basically saying it's not enough. And it seems like you're a little bit desperate, uh, the Chinese leader, the PBOC, to try to gain some control over this. How concerning is that? Well, I think China's always sort of a a simmering concern. Um, You know, many analysts call for some sort of big disaster there. You know, they've been calling it for the last 10 years. You know, it, it's clear that they're slowing, and you know we always have this discussion. Well, how how do you trust the Chinese numbers? Well, you can't really, but what you can trust is the sort of the official uh, actions and the fact that this. I think the fourth reserve requirement cut this uh, year. There was some other directed lending. Uh, it's clear they were concerned about a slowdown. Um, they, we are seeing. Um, I would assume I think a slower than expected slowdown, given the policy reaction. Uh, bottom line, though, I, I do think China kind of muddles through. It's. Uh, I think the trade tension of the U.S. makes things obviously much more difficult, and that's yet another ball that they're juggling. Um, and so am I a little bit worried about China? Yeah, I am. I'm probably a little more worried than usual, but I, I, I'm not in the sort of uh, we're, we're headed for disaster camp uh, at this point. Can you tell us your outlook for currencies that are tied to commodities, such as the Canadian loonie and the Australian dollar? Sure. Um, well, you know, Canada, it's two separate sets, because if you think about the commodities, well, Australia is linked usually to... Uh, iron ore in China. Um, so uh, from, as a result, the Austrian dollar has, been, has not been doing well recently. Uh, on the flip side, uh, the loonie is, is more linked towards uh, oil. Uh, and of course, uh, oil is on a tear. Um, you know, at some point, though, too much of a good thing is, is, uh, is too much. Uh, you know, at some point, high oil prices are, become negative for the world economy. I mean, you know, sure, it's great for the producing countries, but if you're uh, an oil-consuming country, like most, yeah, most industrializations are, uh, that really starts to take a toll, uh, whether it's at the pocketbook, at the at the pump, or e- even at the at the firm wide level. Uh, too high prices are not good. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm hoping that OPEC realizes this and then they sort of uh, take some stronger action. They've been at this point a little bit blasé about it, but I think it's a growing concern given all the other headwinds. Uh, on the global economy. When you said that you do expect uh, the ongoing deterioration in emerging market uh, currency valuations to continue versus hard currencies, but is there anywhere where you see uh, sort of potential opportunities, or do you think that everything's going to get sort of caught up on the fe- in the Fed tightening and sort of the uh, the QT that's taking over the world? Well, you know, one well, negative on EM, uh, I would say I'm very negative going into year-end and probably, I'd say, the first half of next year. But, uh, you know, I, I think we're sort of halfway through the sell-off maybe, uh, maybe a little bit more. But I do think there's ways to go still um, before we sort of get to an equilibrium. Now, 
Um, within EM, though, I, you know, I should say that we, there are opportunities. You know, for instance, the Mexican peso is actually up this year, up 3%. So there's a real differentiation. You know, you've got the five sort of really worst currencies, Argentina, Turkey, South Africa, uh, and now Brazil and India have swapped places. Brazil has rallied on the election, so it's actually gotten pushed up to only sixth worst. Uh, and you've got India and uh, Russia rounding out the, the worst five. You know, you've got this EM weakness concentrated in, in a handful, whether it's five, six, seven countries. Uh, with idiosyncratic risk, other currencies and countries are holding up better. Taibot, Colombian peso, Malaysian ringgit, um, Mexico, as I mentioned earlier. So there's definitely differentiation. I think markets in a, in a tighter global liquidity story, markets are, are punishing the sort of the debtor countries, those that have high current account or budget deficits. And they're, they're not only they're rewarding, but they're sort of leaving alone the countries, the surplus countries, and many of those are in Asia. So again, look, look under the hood. You can't, you can't. Uh, sell EM en masse, but in general, I do think the asset class is, is going to remain under pressure. Now, we always talk about countries when they are under pressure, for example, Argentina. Any update on the Argentine peso and the efforts of the Argentine government to contain inflation and produce a credible budget? Well, I'd say we're, we're, I look at that glass as half full. Um, they've taken all the right steps. Uh, they've tightened monetary policy several times, numerous times. Um, tightened fiscal policy, gone to the IMF. In fact, they just increased the IMF uh, program um, by request. Uh, so they've done all the right things. It's finally, um, I think the pace was finally starting to get some traction. Um, so, you know, I think clearly, uh, you know, the move over forward might have been in a bit of an overshoot. But within this EM bear market, I, I, I don't think Argentina peso can recover too much in absolute terms. I'd say the same thing with Brazil. You know, we've had a great sort of pre-election and post-election run. But we're in this EM bear market. I don't, I don't think there's much more room for, for absolute gains. Now, in, on a relative basis, you know, I think those two, because they've been hammered so badly this, this year, uh, could, start, could do a little bit more outperforming within EM. Um, but, uh, you know, in absolute terms, uh, I'm pretty negative. I want to thank you very much for joining us and giving us uh, your thought. Uh, Dr. Wynn Thin is Global Head of Emerging Markets FX at Brown Brothers Harriman. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.